welcome. You have made your way into the perilous realms, and um, I suppose I'm going to be your guide today. My name is Paul Lytle. As a way of an introduction, I am a storyteller of several mediums. I use books, podcasts, music, and streaming. And I created this space in particular to combine a few of those passions and to share the audiobook versions of my novels with you. I'm going to release a section of a novel once a week, and we're going to start with my most recent work, The Hallowing of Ground. I will tell you uh, more about how this story came together in, in a future episode, but this is what you should expect going in. This is a gothic adventure, a vampire hunting tale that is set in a small and declining town. The chapters in this book are fairly short, and I'll share more than one chapter a week. And the book itself isn't terribly long, so we should have it completely out without too many episodes. Um, if this is something that you just really, really need to hear the rest of right away... It is complete and already out on Audible, but I will be pro uh, posting the entire story here in due time. I really do appreciate you stopping by and hanging out, and uh, and so I won't keep you much longer here in this introduction. Let's go ahead and jump into the first part of The Hallowing of Ground. Prelude. The boy's stick cut easily into the moistened ground, its motions forming a shallow path in the dirt, so subtle that it probably wouldn't have even been noticed by the casual looker-on in that damp basement, had there been one at the time. The light was bad in there, its only sources the wide slit windows at the top of two walls, and whatever managed to find its way through the oddly spaced planks of wood that gave the house's main room its floor and the basement its ceiling. The room had earthen walls and floor, and if it had been more dry, he would have been able to trace the beams of light from the window or twixt the floorboards through the dusty air and toward the basement ground. But it hadn't been dry in a long time, and the dirt was too damp to get kicked up into the air. The wet went so deep, in fact, that it even curled its way along the low edges of the house to make the basement floor moist. The poor lighting and the dark ground made it difficult to make out the pattern well, but he was concentrating closely blowing a few strands of straight reddish hair from their place tickling his nose. They fell back in the exact same place, but he was too busy correcting one of the lines to worry about it. His thin frame scampered across the floor, careful not to disturb what he had drawn so far. He came across the slightly askew line and rubbed it out, then used the stick to correct it. It was perhaps not a lot better, but it was at least some better. Watson, he heard his mother cry for him. He could see her footfalls as they blocked out the light from the floorboards above and heard the creaking of the boards adjusting to the weight. Down here, mother, he called back, barely giving notice. Wasson wasn't his given name. His actual name was Franklin, but he was the youngest of five boys, eight if you count the ones that died in infancy, and his mother kept calling him Was name because she couldn't remember it right away. That eventually got shortened to Wasson and became permanent. He liked it better than Franklin anyways. Dinner is almost ready, she said. I hope you're not getting muddy down there. Wasson licked his lips. No, ma'am, he replied. 
He really wasn't that dirty at all. He was being careful. This type of work requires patience and concentration, not thrashing around in the dirt. Also, he hadn't, he hadn't wanted his mother to know what he was up to, and getting dirty was a sure way to get her to investigate. It was his friend's fault, of course. They told him that if he drew a particular pattern and cast a spell of summoning, a spell they all knew very well but had never tried themselves, then he would be able to summon an undead creature to help with his chores. This plan immediately appealed to him, and he set about to accomplish it. He was sure his mother, who had been widowed a few years before and was getting older herself, would understand once the servant was with them. But adults do not approve of such things in their doing. So he wanted to surprise her once the thing was done. He was eight years old now, and his mother had been well into her thirties when she had him. Now she was in her forties, and that meant she was one of the older people in town. Old man Graner was a bit over fifty, but that was crazy old, and not many people lived that long. Do you know where your brother is? his mother called. No need specifying which brother. There was only one of them still at home. The other three were often married now. No, mother, he called back. If he's playing in that graveyard again, she muttered as she started out of the house. That gave him a minute. The graveyard was just north of their house and was a tempting place to play. Wasson played there too, but he was too crafty to get caught. But his brother Rob was afflicted, as many people put it, but the kids just called him stupid. He wouldn't even try to hide when adults came round and threatened to catch him doing something he wasn't supposed to do, like playing in the graveyard. He corrected one more line and blinked. It was done. It, it was done. He threw the stick away from him and hurried out of the circle, looking carefully at the lines that made up the pentagram. It's done, he whispered, his lips dry again. Suddenly, he didn't at all want to go through with it. Suddenly, he was scared. This is crazy, wasn't it? He knew of the undead, and they never actually did helpful things like sweeping or making dinner in the stories. They were always trying to eat brains or drink blood or weird stuff like that. No. He breathed deeply and sat down on the edge, cross-legged and sweating, despite the rather cool temperature in the basement. He would do it. He needed to. He steeled himself for the job. He told his friends he would, even when they laughed at him, he would do it. Just a few words, and the creature would appear within the circle, now bound to him. Undead, he said, trying to intone the words like he imagined a necromancer would. Undead creature, you must come, you must come, you must come now! He stopped breathing. If he thought through things rationally. He would have thought about the ridiculousness of those words, but things like that don't always occur to a young boy like Wasson. It seemed like a perfectly good spell to those who are prone to believe the things whispered by the ten-year-old down the street. He waited, but nothing happened. He breathed out, long and exacerbated breath that was more disappointment than the need for oxygen. Had he done something wrong? Or was it just a joke played on him by the other boys? He looked over the lines carefully. Well, maybe they were a little sloppy. Yeah, yeah, he could see now that the one on the far right was, was a little hasty, and another one 
over there wasn't really straight. He began looking for the stick again. He'd probably need to try again tomorrow, but at least he could fix those two mistakes. Then tomorrow, he'd give it another whirl. Even as he thought he knew he wouldn't, the truth was beginning to come to him. It was a silly spell, wasn't it? He, he hadn't actually seen someone cast real magic before, but he always heard that the incantations were long lines and long dead languages, not something so simple. He had tried, but he knew his friends had played a trick on him. He half-heartedly continued his search for the stick, but he was losing interest in it even as he did. But then he heard something, and he stopped suddenly. He waited. His lips were dry again, but he didn't move. Nothing. Mother? He called up, but she was still outside. Wait, there was again. It was a scratching sound. Almost like the sounds of shifting dirt. He turned to face the circle, looking carefully at it to see what was happening. His heart was beating out of his chest, but he couldn't see anything. Had it been his imagination? Oh, it couldn't be. It was definitely there. Perhaps a rat. But it was a bit too loud for that, he thought. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was Rob just outside the window or something. Yeah, yeah, that had to be it. But then he saw movement out of the corner of his eye. And it wasn't in the circle at all. It was on the earthen wall on the far side of the room. The dirt was crumbling there, like it was being shaved off of the wall in rhythmic pulses, falling in time with the noises. Each scratch ensued, then to be followed by the dull tinkling of grains of dirt hitting the ground. Watson came closer. His brow furrowed as he looked. His eyes narrowed and focused, and then the wall started coming apart. The boy yelped and jumped back, but then he composed himself. There was no danger yet, so he stopped and watched. A small hunk of dirt had fallen inward, revealing a hole in the wall about a foot in diameter. There was darkness within, and nothing more, nothing but silence. Watson was holding his breath, and he stepped forward again. Now his eyes were wide, and his tiny frame was shaking, but he dared not run. He had to know what was happening. He waited, and he watched. Utter silence in the room. Silence that seemed thick and deep, almost as though he could feel it. A silence that was only broken when the white hand reached outward in a sudden thrust, its arm now completely out of the hole, and Wasson yelped again, this time fleeing toward the ladder as quickly as his legs would carry him, which were quite fast, for the boy loved to run, but the run was also hasty, and in his flight, the very stick he had been using earlier got caught up in his feet, sending him sprawling. He tumbled to the ground, limbs flailing about him wildly, and he slid over the damp dirt, crashing into the ladder, which was firm enough to absorb the blow, but it shot pain into Wasson's ribs in retaliation. He tried to hurry down to his feet, but the pain knocked him down again. He didn't think any ribs were broken. Wouldn't be the first time, but he had bruised them pretty good. He forced himself up, laying a hand on the ladder. Wait, a firm voice commanded. It was filled with authority. His tone demanded obedience. Despite himself, Wasson stopped. He looked around, his nose runny, and he was breathing heavily. 
The small hole was now a large one, and a man stood there, his arms to his side, his head held high. His skin was unnaturally white, his black hair ruffled and long. He was covered in dirt, his clothes caked in mud. But despite all of that, Wasa could tell that his skin was sunken in and his frame unnaturally thin, like he was grossly malnourished. He looked tired and frail, but somehow not weak. No, his stature was one of dignity and poise, despite the untidiness of his appearance. His eyes were laid upon Wasson, and they were unwavering, unflinching. His face was clean-shaven, but angular and austere. You, Wasson said, looking carefully at the man's skin. You, you are undead. The man regarded the boy, but seemed to understand the meaning of the question, despite its unpredictable forwardness. He surveyed the room, pausing as he noticed the pentagram in the center of the floor. A smile touched the corner of his lips, but just for a moment, he answered, I am. Wasson chuckled. It had worked. It had worked. What is your name? Fortosio, the man said, tilting his head. I am to understand that you have summoned me. I, I did, the boy said excitedly. I can't believe it worked. It has worked, and I have come. Will you invite me in? The smile on Fortosio's lips was wide then, and if Wasson had been paying attention, he might have noticed the unusual length of Fortosio's eye teeth. But Wasson was too excited to notice. Day one. One. There was something about the man atop the carriage that naturally drew the attention of people around him. Well, perhaps it was several things rather than simply one. First of all, the carriage was brightly colored with lettering printed on every side, advertising the carnival had come to town, and this man seemed to be remarkably unlikely to be involved in such an endeavor. His clothing was dull brown, his faded cloak, once a dark green, was tattered, hanging limply over his head and shoulders. His hair was brown as well, unkempt strands hanging nearly randomly around his head. He was young, yet he had a look about him that he had seen more than most his age, seen things in bin places, the local saying went. Perhaps it was the fact that he was virtually surrounded with weapons. Two swords hung from his belt, and they stuck out to his sides oddly in this seating position. A dagger sat with them. To one side was a small crossbow, one easily used with a single hand. Well, perhaps not so easily, since it was covered in knobs and levers that seemed to have no discernible purpose, which made it seem more like a curiosity than a weapon. On his other side lay a bow, this one devoid of levers. On his back, he wore quivers with both arrows and crossbow bolts. Perhaps it was the fact that he was blind and yet still driving a carriage. His eyes were tightly bound with a gray scarf, and there would be no way that he would be able to see through that, even if his eyes were working, which they weren't. In fact, they weren't there at all. That final fact, of course, was the thing that was most startling, since it was the thing that cast doubt on whether he could be a circus performer, a warrior of any sort, or frankly, the driver of a carriage. 
The carts, it so happened, had not been painted by him. It had been the final gift of a dying friend. Well, it wasn't exactly volunteered, but the friend wouldn't need it further, being now dead, and the three people he'd left behind had good use for it. So, no, the carnival was not coming to town, but to be honest, the town of Feldstadt needed this blind man far more than it needed a clown. Ooh, look at that, said a figure just beside him. I see them, the driver said, his face never turning. His hands were steady and his voice calm and even. His companion climbed into the seat beside him, sitting well below his friend, though the difference in height was not awkward between them. The gnome's brow furrowed beneath the large-brimmed brown hat that was masterfully embossed with images of gears and cogs. Between the hat and his leather trench coat, with similar embossing, a coat that nearly touched the ground, he looked a little larger than he actually was, and his massive mustache seemed to only just fit his face. Wait, who? The goblins, at the next curve up the road. The gnome craned his head to look, but soon gave up and instead snatched up the crossbow that was sitting there. How, what was the setting for goblins, he wondered aloud, and he began fiddling with one of the knobs when the taller man snatched it from him. Hey, the gnome cried. No time, said the blind man, and he was on his feet. The first goblin had only just turned around from behind the tree when a loud twang rang from the crossbow and the bolt embedded itself in the leather tunic of the small creature. It knocked the goblin over with a grunt and thud, but it scrambled then, trying to get to its feet. The man frowned at that as he leapt from the carriage top, meeting the ground with a tight roll. He was out of it and on his feet in an instant, both hands upon sword hilts and drawing the weapons as three more goblins emerged farther up the road. The wounded one was reaching its feet when its head sprang off its shoulders with a slice that barely slowed the man down, but that didn't seem to deter the others from charging. The gnome had taken control of the carriage and was still closing the distance, but now he was on his feet as well. With a flourish, he pushed his coat aside, revealing a shiny weapon holstered on a low belt, its curved handle molded for easy graveling of handling and, most importantly, firing. He drew and shot from the hip, and the force came alive in sound as the weapon kicked mightily in its recoil, but the gnome held fast to it. The goblin at the end of the road did not, and it went down unceremoniously, its blood splattering into the air as though the thunder of the gun had brought the rain with it. The goblins had axes, their stubby green hands twitching on the handles as they charged in, raising the weapons to strike. The first came, but was easily parried by the human, who lifted his left sword for the block while his right came across its belly, cutting through its protective clothing and into pale skin, splashing more blood onto the damp ground. The goblin was too slow in reacting, and the human elbowed its snout, causing it to stumble back while the blind man stabbed it again, this time embedding the sword into its chest. A bit too far, it seemed, because it became lodged in the creature's ribs, and when the man tried to draw it out, it caught. He turned wide-eyed, or as close to wide-eyed as his facial expressions could manage, as the last goblin was leaping at him, and in panic, he lifted his sword with all his might, bringing the dead goblin with it a couple of feet off the ground. It was a slow and wearying maneuver, a desperate one. But it was also all he needed, and the last of the goblins tumbled into the corpse of his cohort, holding it off momentarily.
There was a dog at the scene then, a hardy mastiff that hurried alongside the human, barking loudly as he came. His loose skin and ears bounced dramatically as he ran, and fearlessly he leapt at the goblin, catching its arm with his jaw and the canine clamped down. Damn it, Morella, the human muttered, and he sidestepped to the right as the crossbow bolt came just on his left popping into the goblin's throat as it was starting to yelp from pain of having a dog bite its arm. That yelp became a gurgle, and it went down. The auburn-haired woman hanging off the side of the carriage lowered her crossbow. Her emerald eyes were unmoving from the man ahead of her, but they sparkled somewhat. It was a sparkle that was tough to read, especially by a gnome who was more interested in how machines tick than people, and by a man who had been bad at reading people even when he had eyes to see them. Her skin was lighter than theirs by a couple of shades, her wavy hair pulled up right now. She wore her collar high, a sword on her belt, and a crossbow considerably larger than her companions. She was remarkably competent with both. Morella, the man said, a little annoyed but trying not to show it too much. You're, you're supposed to stay in the carriage. We don't know who or what is out there. I would think that you, of all people, would be thankful for my help in battles, Morella said. Her voice had the melody of the locals, enunciating the syllables particularly, but still rolling her R's, intending to turn her THs into Z's. The man and the gnome, however, were distinctly not local. Crathen, no, that's wrong, the gnome said, hurrying down from the carriage. He went to the human and took the crossbow back. The weapon was hanging from a leather band from the man's shoulder, so he wouldn't lose it like he had his previous crossbow, but that is a story for a different time. He had a tendency to drop them once they were emptied. You need to place the settings appropriate for the enemy we're fighting. If you just let me set it up, your shot would have killed that goblin. He began fiddling with the dials. It's too complicated, Sprocket, Crethen complained. My old one was just point and shoot and it was great. You missed a ghoul at point blank range with your old one. Morella stifled a laugh. Crethen looked toward her, out of habit but not need. What? he asked innocently. <laughs> I had not heard about that one, she said with a playful smile. Please, tell me more about the super fast ghoul you fought that could dodge crossbow bolts at will. Ha ha, Crethen mocked, shaking his head. He leaned down toward the dog and began rubbing his back vigorously. Good job, Gizmo, he said happily. He went then to the open carriage. There was a large object inside covered in a sheep, and he carefully drew it out. It's a massive cage, two feet high at least. He removed the sheet and found Bergern, his falcon, alive and awake. The white and gray bird cawed at him excitedly. Make sure our path is clear, Crethen said, opening the cage, and the bird was out then, flying up with rapid speed and disappearing among the treetops. We have been on this road for days now, Morella said to Crethen, her eyes upon the scarf. It had been awkward for her at first, but she knew that he could see her, even if none of them really understood how, and she had since begun treating him like she had before it happened. He didn't need the eye contact, but she often wondered if it comforted him. Her eyes darted a moment to his hands, just to check. They were steady. Good. I, I don't think these goblins were looking for us, do you? No, she said softly. These were random thug creatures looking for sport. He nodded and motioned for Gizmo to get back inside. We need to rest, she insisted. There are towns along the river to the north. He looked down, then back up again at her. He didn't need the eye contact, but he also thought it was comforting to her. 
what I did in town last week, you, you know I didn't. She shook her head. I was under a spell. You did what you could. I know that. He looked down again. It wasn't what he wanted to say, but it was also the most he'd be able to. Town it is. Do you know anything about this place? No, she said. Word from the area is very rare. These people are very remote. Probably for the best, Crethen said. He gently closed the door and climbed back into the driver's seat. Mirella stuck her head out the window. For heaven's sakes, Crethen, let Sprocket drive. You draw more attention to us than this circus wagon does. Crethen shrugged, saying, Fair enough. And he handed the reins to Sprocket. The gnome started off as the human suddenly said, What was it you were looking at when we got attacked? Oh, Sprocket replied excitedly, his hands shooting out toward the horizon to direct his friend's attention. The trees descended on that side of the road, following a rather precipitous drop in the land as it descended to meet the river. The clouds there were still lingering from the recent storms, but starting to pass, and the evening shone through upon the damp land before them. Despite it being autumn, the green of the trees popped out, the leaves maintaining a thin sheen from the water. To their right, the land rose again, cresting on a cliff over the river. The sound of waterfall reached them even there, though they couldn't actually see that place where the water off the mountain cut its way to a collective spot where it then tumbled down into the waters below. Of course, none of that would in the least bit interest Sprocket, who was instead focused on an aging pipe, easily as tall as himself and perhaps larger still, that descended slowly from the cliffs down a hill and toward the bank below. An aqueduct, Sprocket said, giddy at his side. Huh. I can't see it, Crethen shrugged and leaned back on the bench. He was blind, after all. Welcome to Rabanesta. This is my hunt club where we take on the most dangerous game in all of Ivalice. We find Meteo. I've decided on it. <laughs> that's that's what we're doing. Okay. Um, I'm look- totally okay with this, but you're going to have to use your life force in order to cast it. You only have 90 magic points. I only have oh, 90 man. magic points. It costs 99. What What's his, What's that guy's name? Tella? Uh, Tella, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, man, rough story. F's, F's in chat for Tella. I see no Fs. I guess nobody likes him as much as wow. I do. Okay, so there are three effects that the Malbro can have. Mimosa, you are poisoned, blinded, and confused. Oh, no. So you do not know who's around you. You do not know where the enemy is. You think your name is Fran. You think you're holding a bow and arrow. You think you've got some human I'm boyfriend. I'm sure I hear the yeah. forest calling me home. This is Mont Blanc's Hunters a Final Fantasy role-playing game using the Genesis system from Fantasy Flight Games. Shall we begin, Koopa? Two. The road descended further, sloping down toward the riverbed. The landscape was craggy before them, spiking high in one spot with towering rocky spires, then falling into a narrow valley beside the gurgling stream. The valley was what they were coming to, and as the trees parted before them, the small town came into view. Even at the first, the place seemed empty, not in the way that it was deserted, because it clearly was not. There were a few children in the street, as well as a trio of adults wandering to some destination or another. No, it was not deserted, 
but it was a shell of a place. One that seemed that if it were to break, you would find that there would be nothing beneath the surface at all. The buildings were aging, and not well at that. The aqueduct coming from the mountain lake gave an air respectability to the town, but it was the anomaly. The rest of the town seemed to sprawl out with little reason, patched desperately, neglected and worn. As they came, they saw an inn before them, but it was identified only by its size and style and not by a sign because there was not one. But the bright lights behind large windows and the fact that the path at its front door was well worn by traffic told of its purpose well enough. Flanking it were various storefronts, a general store on one side, and then a group of tradesmen by the look of it. Across the way, opposite the entrance to the town, was a meager church. The paneling was limp and its paint cracked. The graveyard beside it seemed overfull, and there was a mixture of fine stone grave markers and also temporary wooden crosses toward the far end. The local priest was actually in the cemetery at that moment, nervously sprinkling holy water on the graves. It was an odd thing to do. But in a land ruled by a vampire, all sorts of local customs developed like that. Ones that had seemed to make sense to someone at some point, but that probably didn't do anything at all. An impressive looking building sat on another side of what must have been the town square, this building likely for officials of the town. In the middle of that square sat a broken fountain, its once white stone top cracked and dulled with age the basin chipped and part of it missing completely. The home spread out around from there, with a well just a score yards down. The main corridor was wide, as though this place had once enjoyed a booming market, or at least had hoped for one. The town felt as though the world had darkened a shade upon that very spot, and yet there was enough evidence that it had not always been so. It was unfortunately common everywhere they went, and yet Crethen couldn't help but feel sorry for the people there. There was a curse upon this land, and even he could see it, and even without eyes. These pipes, Sprocket was saying, and Crethen realized his gnomish friend had wandered off. They found him in the weeds beside the end, looking at the wall. Crethen found him looking at a rusted pipe that ran from underground into the side of the building, as neglected as anything else was here. Sprocket continued, The aqueduct must be very old, he shook his head. To turn it on now would probably cause all these pipes to leak. That could be fixed easily enough. Don't get yourself a new project, Crethen said, his attention drifting toward a group of children playing nearby. We won't be here long. He was stepping away already, sensing something was amiss, and his senses were on alert. The children were playing, yes, but there was one boy that wasn't looking at the rock or stick that they were using in their game, but had his eyes fixed on Crethen, his gaze unwavering, even when there was a crack of the stick hitting the rock. Crethen stepped toward him, somehow understanding that the boy was not malicious. Hello? he said, his mouth dry. The boy's voice was strained and childish, betraying an intelligence far above his apparent age. The sweeping starts at night when everyone is sleeping, he said simply. No one thinks I hear it, but I hear it. But the sweeping stops for you, O man who sees. Crethen was taken aback by the last phrase. 
his heart skipping a beat by the weight of it, and he said, What what did you say? Rob, Rob. A woman's voice came from down the street. The boy turned in that direction and said, Coming, mother. And like that, he was gone, running toward his home for dinner. What was that? Mirella said from behind him. And it startled Crethen just enough that he jumped. Her hand landed on his shoulder and she giggled. It did not mean to scare you, Crethen. No, the man said, looking after the boy until he had disappeared from his range of perception. No, it's just that that boy called me the man who sees. She brought around her other hand and he found it was carrying a cane. If you keep walking around without this, the entire town will know that you see. Take it and let's go. I am hungry and the horse needs to be fed. The stable was beside the end, and so they went ahead and made use of it to get their horse unbridled and dried off before going inside. There was no one stationed there, so they would make arrangements once within. The door leading in from the stable was locked, however. Not terribly uncommon in a town, so little trafficked. So they went back around to the front, Crethen careful to lean a bit on his staff for appearance's stake. The inside of the tavern was dark, the windows dirty and making the sunlight duller as it came in. The front room was long, the bar taking up a 20-foot length of one of the walls to the left, and a few tables set up across from it. On the right was a fireplace with, with a few chairs and sofas clumped around it, small tables scattered around haphazardly for the placing of drinks and food, though of food and drink there was none of that now. There was a wild-haired man behind the bar, sitting down and tossing a ball against a nearby wall and catching it when it bounced back. Behind him was an open window and a door, likely both leading into the kitchen. Another door was on the right side of the long room, probably to some rooms in the stable. The only other person in the room sat at the center table in the line of tables by the bar, looking longingly out of the window at the sunshine as it passed through the dirty windows. The young man at the bar, so thin that his hair was the widest point of his body, caught sight of the visitors suddenly and nearly yelped at the surprise. Oh, greetings, he said, letting the ball bounce away as he stood up and wiped off his britches. His clothing was not dirty, so it was more likely a nervous reaction, but the man was undoubtedly excited. Probably the owner from his level of excitement. Visitors meant new money, after all. Please, have a seat anywhere. You're new here. Welcome to Philstad. What brings you around here? What can I get for you? The ale was already being poured. It was the only thing there to drink, so there was no need to actually ask somebody what their order would be. And while it was early for supper, the mention of food was making the mouths of the visitors water. He was around the bar when he stopped suddenly, seeing Gizmo seated patiently on the floor, wagging his tail. He is, um, yours? Mirella said, we, we can take him outside. No, it's okay, he said, putting the glasses down on the nearest table, which would apparently be where the three would be sitting. Just want to make sure he's not the stray. He'll stay with you then, right? The question was actually polite instruction. Of course. Not a lot here, I'm afraid, but our cook is the best I know. To be fair, the cook is me, but I have great affection for how I prepare things. Whether it's someone else's taste or not is up to them, but people seem to like it here fine. Uh, A stew would be fine, Crethen said, intentionally looking the wrong way. Excellent, the man said. I am Dieter, by the way. Folk around here call me feathers because I hate plucking them and I pay the kids to do it for me. Just call me if you need anything, but I'll be right back here. 
He disappeared into the back, and the trio slowly sat into their seats, having not picked a table, ordered drinks, nor sat in the time that Feathers had bounced around the area, and yet all but the final part had been done, and honestly to their satisfaction. The other man in the room was chuckling. He was a darker man, a bushy beard swallowing his face and an old hat covering the parts that the beard didn't. That feathers makes me laugh, he said warmly. Uh, Jenks the name. I've been working this road now five years, and I don't think I've actually seen another soul upon it, much less such an interesting band as yourself. Crethen was the reply. My friends are Mirella and Sprocket. The man looked toward the bat cautiously. Oh, I know, he said, lowering his voice. The blind man a table away cautiously put a hand on his sword hilt but waited for the other to make his move, whatever it would be. I am a merchant, you understand. I wander my way to and fro about this place, from the big cities back east over to these lonely places around here. I happen to be wrapping up one leg of my journey up the river. Got a decent deal on some wine, and I know they've been short some, he shrugged. Would have made a fine profit, except some fool vampire decided to burn down half the damn town because some blind man and his dwarf friend pissed him off pretty good. Sprocket turned with some interest to Crethens, whispering, Do you think there's another blind guy who made a vampire mad like we did? Crethen ignored him, but said to Jenk, It doesn't sound very likely, does it? The merchant laughed, Oh, old wives' tales are just that. And most old wives can't tell the difference between a dwarf and a gnome. But half the city was burned down sure enough, and everyone, ho and everyone knew who did it. Me, I lost some money, sure, but I still wish I could have seen it. Don't worry, though, that story hasn't made it quite out this far. I'm the first one through since it happened, and I haven't gotten around to that yet with these folk. Panic is bad for business, you see. As for me... The vampires do as they like. If they ever target me, I know there's nothing I can do about it. You three, though, that's something different. Did you kill it? Crethen shook his head. Still, Jenk said, a little smile on his face. That's something. I appreciate it if you would remain the only one who knows, Crethen said. It's hard for us to hide. There aren't that many gnomes around here. <laughs> Actually, none, Jenk agreed. And not that many blind men either. The man kept nodding. He took a long sip to finish his glass. I'll not say a word if you do not wish it, but when I tell you what has been happening here, if you are who I think you are, you might volunteer yourselves before I get around to telling anyone. Who does he think we are? Sprocket asked. People who also want to cleanse the land more than the average man here does. People who are willing to do something about it. I don't know why. It must be personal. It might just be your noble spirit. Hell if I know. But I've met a lot of people, and I know a fighter when I see one. You two are obviously foreigners, so you probably aren't used to this life yet. This place has a way of crushing you. It dumps you into a life, and you live it. And if at the end of the day you find that you are a cattle for old high and mighty on the mountaintop, then that's what it is. Life isn't worth much here. Maybe you just come from a place where a man's life is worth a bit more, so you're willing to defend it. Maybe. You, on the other hand, he motioned to Morella. You are from here, but that fire is still there, 
That's something, to be sure. I didn't know what to expect if I ever met you three. Didn't think I probably ever would, to be honest. But now you are here, and I can see it. Surely I can. She glanced at Crethen, who of course didn't look back, even though she knew he noticed. He noticed everything, at least within a certain difference. What, what has happened here? She asked. It was then that feathers came back, carrying three bowls like they were nothing. Very good, very good, and here we are, my good friends. We have little here, but I didn't spare a lick of the nothing that we have, I promise. He began setting the food down, and it did smell quite good. Crethen was smiling when he said, We'll be in town tonight, so if we could have a couple of rooms. Also, I brought a horse. Uh, we already stabled him. Oh, yeah, about that. Feather said, seriously, all of a sudden, you might want to sleep in the church tonight. I, the horse will be fine. Mine hasn't been bothered or locked up at night, but most of the people in town like to play it safe and sleep there. The three stopped mid-bite to look up. I was just telling them about that, Jenks said. The town of Philstadt has a bit of a vampire problem of its own, I'm afraid. Crethen forgot to act blind for a second and turned his head toward Morella, his heart suddenly pumping rapidly. Mirella herself was already wide-eyed. What? he demanded. There's a vampire here? Came on pretty fast, too. I was through here last not two weeks ago, and everything was fine. It is one of my favorite stops, Felstad. No money to be made here, but I'm always very welcomed, and the food is good. Everything was fine. Feathers seemed nervous and twitchy speaking of this particular topic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been maybe ten days, all of a sudden, too. No warning. Two men killed in the first night, totally drained. With two bled out in one night, we thought it might be several vampires, but I don't think so. I think it was just hungry. It didn't strike again for a few days, and after that, just everyone stayed in the church at night. It's been awkward, but it works. Since no one is staying here, I am the only one who could give it permission to come in. So you see, my horse has been safe. Most of us hang out here until it's about that time, and we cross the street together. It's been snagging a few animals here and there since then. Nothing really big. That is why I think it's only one. It hasn't been killing much the last week. Only enough to survive. Please join us next week for more of The Hallowing of Ground. The Hallowing of Ground was written and read by me, Paul Lytle. Copyright 2019. All music in the episode was composed by me and performed by the Techno Funk Boy. You can find links to my Discord server and Patreon in the episode description. Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms is a Play Well Network podcast.